So as we begin reading in the book of Hebrews, chapter 1 and verse 1, it says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. You know, when people go through a hard time, a time of suffering or a time of struggle, a time of loss, and those struggles that they're facing can do one of two things. It can either draw you closer to God or it can push you away. That is the heart of what's going on within the book of Hebrews. In the book of Hebrews, we're dealing with some people that are, that are struggling. And is this struggle going to draw them to God or is it going to push them away from God? And that's really the crux of the book. The book of Hebrews is really a call to commitment. It's a call to commitment, to faithfulness. We don't know who the author is. I personally think it's probably maybe Barnabas, maybe Apollos. I don't think it's one of the apostles because the apostles usually tell us who they are. And especially the Apostle Paul. A lot of people think that it's the Apostle Paul. I even thought that myself for a while. But I just can't get over the fact that he never mentions that he's the Apostle. In all the rest of Paul's writings, he uses his position as an Apostle to gain him authority. And especially when he's arguing against false teaching or false teachers or or warning people about how they're living, he leans on his apostleship, but he never even mentions it. So I don't think it's the Apostle Paul. But it obviously is somebody very knowledgeable. Well, the fact of the matter is we just don't know. We do know that it's written to Christians. The author identifies them in chapter 3 and verse 1. He calls them holy brothers, you who share in the heavenly calling. Also, when we get to chapter 6 and verse 9, he's just got done correcting them and saying, look, you're, you're in danger of committing apostasy and turning your back on the Son of God. But then in chapter 6, verse 9, it says, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. He's saying, we're confident that you're going to pull through this, that you're going to be faithful. You're going to show your faith in your actions, that you really are saved. We do know that they're not, they're not people that heard the ministry of Christ right from Christ Himself. They're what we'd call second generation Christians. They heard it from the apostles. We know that from uh, chapter 2 and verse 3. It says it was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. So they're saying we didn't hear it straight from Christ, but those who heard gave it to us. In Hebrews chapter 10, we learn a lot about this group of people. We, this is where we learn that they're going through a struggle. They're going through some real hardships, and we get a little bit of insight into this. It says in chapter 10, beginning in verse 32, But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. These people were going through some hardships, through some sufferings. He pointed back to an earlier time in their life, a time when they were remaining faithful, when they were showing their commitment. They were doing well. And he says, you know what? You were exposed to public humiliation. Some of you were in prison. Some of you uh, visited those who were in prison. Some of you had your goods confiscated, your, your homes, your properties confiscated because of this. Some of you had these horrible things happening to you. And he said, you accepted it joyfully. 
at first, but now they're starting to have a struggle. So if you put yourself in these people's shoes, these are Jewish people. It's obvious from the content of the entire letter. He's continually pointing them back to the Old Testament and the Jewish history. As he's writing these people, these are people that were brought up looking for the Messiah, waiting for this coming King of Israel. And then the Messiah came. And these people have heard the news of the Messiah and they have accepted him. They put their faith in him. Well, he died on the cross, rose again from the dead, and they're trusting in him as their Lord and Savior. But now it's confusing to them. And the reason it's confusing is that their own people, their own Jewish countrymen, turn against him. The Messiah has come. They've accepted him. But the nation of Israel as a whole has not. And so the nation of Israel begins to persecute these people that are following the Christ. And so now if you put yourself in their shoes, if you're a business owner, nobody's shopping in your store anymore. They're going to the next one. Your kids are probably being picked on on their way home from school. You've got family members that won't talk to you anymore, that have disowned you because you're trusting in this Christ. Your whole social life is wrapped up in your religion as a Jewish person. And now all of a sudden, you're ostracized. You're set outside of that. And so now they have this struggle. The temple's still there. The priests are still functioning. The sacrifices are being offered. And if we just go back to the temple, if we just go back and offer the sacrifices like we used to, then life will go back to normal. Our family members will talk to us. People will start patronizing our businesses. Maybe I'll get my job back. My kids will quit being picked on on their way home from school. Maybe we'll get our home back. Maybe I'll be let out of prison. You see, life would be so much smoother if we just went back to the way things were. And that's their temptation. That's their temptation is to, to turn back. He tells them in chapter 12, verse 4, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding of blood. So in other words, it hasn't cost them their life. But they've been going through some real hardships. And if they just go back to the way things were, life will normal out. Life will settle down. Now, here's the question. Can you do it? Occasionally through my Christian life, I've had that question nagging in my mind. You read through history and there's all kinds of people that were burnt at the stake for their faith. People that were tied around a millstone and drowned for their faith. People that suffered in horrible ways. The apostles themselves, every one of them tortured. Eleven out of the twelve put to death for their faith. And you think, is my faith strong enough? Would I do that? Would I hold on even unto death? And I remember coming out of this conclusion. If I'm not willing to live for my faith, then neither probably would I die for it. And so I turn it to a different question. Am I living out my faith? Am I willing to make the sacrifices, take the stands, let the chips fall where they may, put the action behind my words? Am I willing to live out my faith? And that's exactly what the author is trying to get, communicate to these Hebrews. They need to not defect, not turn their back on Christ, not turn away, even, though, even if it costs you your family, even if it costs you your possessions, even if it costs you your freedom, even if it costs you your life. Jesus said we're happy when it costs us those things. We need to be committed. In this book, there's two tools that he uses to encourage us to remain faithful. The first tool that he uses to encourage us to remain faithful is a comparison. And what he's going to do throughout the book is he's going to compare Jesus Christ to different pinnacles of the, of the Hebrew faith. He compares Jesus to prophets. He compares him to angels. He's going to compare him to Moses. He's going to compare him to the priesthood and the tabernacle with the whole sacrificial system. He's going to compare him to all of it. Everything that is a pinnacle in the Jewish faith, he's going to compare that to Christ. And with every comparison, is going to show that Christ is better by far. Probably one of the best ways for us to see that is just to trace some, some key words that he uses throughout the book and just to follow them through the book and then summarize what we've found. 
couple of the key words or key concepts are the word better. Better shows up repeatedly throughout the book of Hebrews. More excellent, more glorious, superior, greater. All those things kind of mean the same thing, right? They're very closely related. He uses those phrases and, and specifically the word better on many different occasions throughout the book of Hebrews. Let's see where he used them. In chapter 1 and verse 4, it says, Having become as much superior to the angels as the name he inherited is more excellent than theirs. And he makes that case in chapter 1 and 2. In chapter 3 and verse 3, it says, For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Remember, Moses was the person that the Jewish people would tell Jesus, We know that God spoke to Moses, but you were not sure about Well, this points to Moses and it says, look, Moses was faithful in God's house as a servant, but Jesus is in God's house as a son. So he's superior to Moses. He's worthy of more glory. In Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 7, says it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. Now, the context of what he's saying right here is he's looking at Aaron, Moses' brother Aaron, who was the high priest. And he's looking at the whole priesthood and the sacrificial system, which is what Israel relied on for the forgiveness of their sins. He holds that up alongside of Christ. And then it gets pretty deep for a little while in the book of Hebrews where he talks about the priesthood and he compares Aaron's priesthood to this priesthood of this guy named Melchizedek. Melchizedek's not mentioned very many times in the Bible. He's kind of mysterious. And Hebrews uses the mystery surrounding his name. Melchizedek is a guy... That at one time, remember when Abraham and his nephew Lot were moved into the promised land? And Lot moved down by Sodom, down in the plains. A king came through and he took Lot captive and everything that he owned. And Abraham wasn't going to stand for that. And so he went after that king and he defeated that king. And he rescued his nephew Lot and he ended up owning everything that that king owned. And so Abraham, on his way back from rescuing Lot, on his way back from this battle, he encounters this man named Melchizedek, a priest of the Most High God. And he pays Melchizedek a tithe. The word means 10%. So he gives 10% of all the stuff that he just collected from this other king, he gives to this Melchizedek. Now a tithe is, if you think of the word tax, like being taxed, that's kind of what a tithe is. A tithe is, is like a tax. It's like a duty that's paid on something. And so he pays this guy a tax. Now, in the book of Hebrews, he's saying we know one thing. The greater authority taxes the lesser. The lesser pays tithe to the greater. And he said, if you think about it, when Abraham paid tithe to Melchizedek, the priesthood of Aaron is, gonna, is still in Abraham because they haven't been born yet. It's before that. And so he's saying, so you could say that the priesthood of Aaron paid tithe to the priesthood of Melchizedek, which shows that this kind of priesthood is superior. And it's saying that's the kind of priesthood Christ has. He's more like the priesthood of Melchizedek than he is of Aaron. He's the superior priesthood. Like I said, it gets a little deep in some places, but he's just showing the superiority of Christ in his ministry to the ministry of the Old Testament priesthood. Also in chapter 7 and verse 19, it says, For the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And then a couple verses later, it says, This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. In Hebrews chapter 8, it does it several times. It says, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant that He mediates is better 
since it is enacted on better promises. In chapter 9, verse 11, it says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent. Now, what, what this is talking about here is he's talking about the tabernacle. And he's been looking at the Old Testament tabernacle where they would come and offer the sacrifices. Moses was told when he put together that tent that he was shown a pattern of how it should be. In other words, Moses, his tabernacle that he made is just a pattern of the real one that exists in heaven. And the point that he's making is that the whole ministry of the old sacrificial system was just a copy. It was a pattern. It It was a shadow of the real thing. And that Jesus Christ is the real thing. He's the real sacrifice. He's the real high priest that offers himself as a sacrifice. And he is the real deal. And so he is superior in that way. In Hebrews 9.23, says, Thus it was necessary for the copies, there he is again, of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. In Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 34, he says, For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So here he's looking at that time when they were willing to suffer the loss of the things that were being stripped away from them, and they were able to do it joyfully because they knew that life was not all about the things that they possessed. Life was not about the home they were losing. It wasn't about the freedom that was being taken away from them. Life wasn't about the, the peace and with the family members or community members. Life wasn't about those things. They knew that they were headed toward a better life because of losing those things than they would be if they kept them. In Hebrews chapter 11, it's like, kind of like the hall of faith. In chapter 11 of the book of Hebrews, it's given as a big example for us to follow. And it's all these people of faith from the, from the Old Testament that did accomplish great things through their faith. Some of them suffered great things because of their faith. But they all remain faithful and they're given to us as an example. Well, in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 16 says, But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. And then in verse 35 of the same chapter, it says, Women received back their dead by the resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to be released, so that they might rise again to a better life. And then in verses 39 and 40, it says, All these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. You see the point that he's making through that chapter 11? is He's saying these people were able to suffer Horrible things being tortured in all kinds of different ways for their faith in God. How could they do it? Why, why would they do it? It was because they were convinced that they were better off, even with all the torturing. They were better off with the torturing and being faithful to God than they would be without the torturing and not being faithful to God. And he's saying that is better for us as well. In chapter 12, and verse 24, it says, And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. All right, now we've covered a lot of territory here following this word better, more glorious, more excellent, superior, this concept of Christ through the book of Hebrews. Let's just summarize it, can we? If we summarize it, it boils down to this. In Christ, we have a better hope, a better covenant, better possessions, and a better life built on better promise, better sacrifices, and a better word as we seek a better country. 
in spite of any persecution that we may have to endure, this is just plain better for us. You know, no matter what you're threatened with losing in your life, you are always better off to stick with God. It doesn't matter what you're going through or what might be taken from me, what horrible thing you might experience if you remain faithful to God. It doesn't matter what relationship it costs you. It doesn't matter what freedoms it costs you, what possessions or income it costs you. You are always better off with Christ. we got to look at the long run. It's not just about right now. Francis Chan, one of his sermons, he comes walking up onto the stage dragging a rope. And the rope continues on out the door. You don't even have any idea how long it is. And the very end of it is colored. And he says, you know what? He says, we live our whole life for this little colored part at the end. But your life is right on out the door. Eternal. Whatever we suffer here, if it means more glory there, you're better off. Just like Jesus said, don't lay up your treasures on earth where moth and rust corrupt and where thieves break in and steal. It's a poor investment. Lay up your treasures in heaven where those things don't happen. You get to keep it so much longer there. The prizes that we get down here are so short-lived and so, so temporary. Well, that's what the point of the author of the book of Hebrews is making. He's saying, look, we're just, we're just plain better off. We're better off with Christ than we are without Him. Even No matter what it costs us, we're better off being faithful to Christ. You know what? That's important to have locked into our mind because, you know, I was thinking about this. The very essence of sin and the very strength of temptation is being convinced of the opposite. Isn't it? When I, when I think back to the Garden of Eden, Satan came to Eve and Satan told Eve, but God say you can't eat any of this fruit? Eve says, no, we can eat all this fruit. So she points out that God amply provided for them. She said, but we can't eat this one fruit from this one tree. If we eat that, we're going to die. Satan says, you're not going to die if you eat that. You're going to be like God. And Eve listens to Satan and she decides to take matters into her own hands. She decides that she's going to decide what's good and what's not good. And so what has she done? She's convinced herself life is going to be better going against what God said for my life. It's going to make me smarter. It's going to make me happier. It's going to make me more fulfilled. It's going to make me... You can add all kinds of things on the end of that. It's all saying the same thing. Every temptation is the same. Every temptation is attempting you to reject what God has for you, thinking you're going to get something better somewhere else. There is never anything better than Jesus Christ. There might be paths that are going to be more accepted, but there is never any path better for you than the will of God in your life. As we continue, another word that is poked up all throughout the book of Hebrews is the word perfect. In Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 10, it says, For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. In Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 9, it says, And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. And so, so far what we're seeing is that Christ is our perfect Savior through the suffering that he endured. In Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 19 says, The law made nothing perfect. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 28 says, For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. So again, showing the perfection of Christ as the Son of God and our Savior. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 9 says, According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. So it's looking back at that Old Testament system, and it says, look, those people that offered those sacrifices, their conscience was never clear. Because since the sacrifices had to be done every year, that sacrifice was a reminder of their sin. And so their conscience always, they never had got to operate from a clear conscience. Because the old sacrifices, even though it accomplished forgiveness, was temporary. And so it was just a continual reminder. 
In verse 11 it says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. So remember that tent is referring to the tabernacle. Verse 14 of chapter 9, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? You see, the point that he's making in this passage is he's saying, look, those Old Testament sacrifices happened over and over and over, constantly refining the people their sin. He said, in contrast to that, Christ offers a sacrifice once and for all. So under the old system, we have an imperfect system with imperfect sacrifices and imperfect high priests. And so it's an imperfect result with Christ. We have the perfect sacrifice and the perfect high priest offering that perfect sacrifice. And so the sacrifice is not repeated every year. It's done once, once and for all. What does that mean to you personally? What does that mean to me personally? It means, you know what? I can have a clear conscience. Yes, I've sinned and done wrong. There's no doubt about it. We don't need to spend a lot of time on that. I'll admit to it. But you know what? Christ has gone to the cross for my sins. He died once because it was a satisfactory price. My sin is gone. I'm not to be reminded about it. God's not going to be reminded about it. My sin is gone. It's taken care of. And so I can have a clear conscience before God because my sin's gone. I don't have to worry about God bringing it up anymore. I don't have to worry about the judgment day. It's over. Well, Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 1 says, For since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Chapter 11, verse 22 and 23. says, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Here's Here's where I love it. This is where it all comes back around. Remember where it started? Christ is our perfect Savior. He's been perfected through His suffering. He's complete. He's our perfect Savior. And now it gets down to the end. And what's the last thing that we find? Righteous men made perfect. That's us. That's referring to us. That when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ because He is that perfect Savior that offered Himself as that perfect sacrifice, being our perfect high priest, we are perfected. Now, we don't experience all of it yet. Some of it is still future. But we are positionally in Christ. We are perfect in Christ. That is awesome. As we summarize this perfection, the Old Testament, the old system of the law being a shadow of the reality cannot perfect the worshipers who participated in it. However, the Son who has been made perfect forever through His once and for all suffering makes His worshipers perfect, thus purifying their consciences. And we finally get a free conscience in Christ. So we've seen that in this comparison that Christ is better no matter what we have to endure, it's better to be with Christ. We get a clean conscience in Christ. We get to be perfected in Christ. Lastly, there's correction. Not only does he compare Jesus to all these different pinnacles of, the, of their faith, but he also corrects. There's like five warning passages through the book of Hebrews where he speaks very bluntly and very directly with the people. And as, basically his point is this. Look, if you can turn your back on Christ and walk away from him, then your faith was not genuine. And you've got nothing to look forward to but the judgment of God. Faith remains faithful. 
And that is exactly what he encourages them to continue doing. As we do this, we're also going to follow one last key phrase through the book of Hebrews. And it's the word let us. Because he makes a point, he builds a foundation, and then he says, based upon that, let's do this. He uses the phrase 14 times. He points out at least nine different responses that we should have to the truths that we learn throughout the books. Chapter 4 and verse 1, we find the first place that he says, let us do this thing. I call this the let us of realization, that they need to realize the situation they're in. Because he says, therefore, while the promise of entering the rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. He's talking about the salvation. And he's saying, you know what, we ought to fear. If if we're thinking that we might turn our back on Christ, that we might miss this salvation, that should strike fear in our hearts. Other places in the book of Hebrews, he describes God as a consuming fire. For our God is a consuming fire. It's no light thing to miss salvation. It's no light thing, no small thing to spend an eternity in hell separated from God. When He laid down the ultimate price for you in the death of His Son. It is something that ought to strike fear in our hearts. I always have a fear of presenting one side of God and not the other. Right? God is loving, merciful, kind, generous. God is also holy, just, wrathful. He's all of those things. And you know, I know in our day, with a lot of the message that goes out, we, the warm, fuzzy side of God seems to get presented all the time, and the wrathful, the, the, the harder side of God gets overlooked. But the fact of the matter is, does any of us come to salvation without recognizing that it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God? You know, some, some Christians have even gone so far to say, boy, if you, if you went to God because of fear, then that, that was wrong. You should just be drawn to God for His love. And until you recognize the fear of God, you don't really understand the love of God. If fear doesn't drive you to God, you're foolish. Because there's a lot at stake here. And that's where he starts out. The first let us in the book of Hebrews is let us, let us fear. In chapter 4 and verse 11, I would call this the let us of salvation because he says, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. He's given the example of disobedient Israel in the Old Testament. And he says, look, if you can turn your back on God, you're just like the Israelites that turned their back on Moses back in the day. The same unbelief. What happened to them? They died in the wilderness. They didn't make it to the promised land. He said, same thing is going to happen to you. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 14, I would call this the let us of duration. It says, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Part of the point that he's making to them is if your faith is real, it will continue to cling. It will endure. A couple verses later, I would call this the let us of relation. It says, let us then with confidence draw near. He speaks in a way that deals of our relationship with God as that, as a relationship. He says, draw close. When things are troubling in our life, when we're enduring some hardship, it's not time to turn our back on Christ to walk away. It's time to draw near. It's time to draw close. In Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 1, I would call this the let us of education. He says, therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. He just got done rebuking them in chapter 5, saying, look, by this time you guys should be teachers, but you have need to somebody else come in and give you the ABCs all over again of your faith. And he compared them. He said, you're like an infant still needing milk in your diet because you're not ready for meat. You should be ready for meat by now. And so he says, you know what? We need to, we need to grow. 
We need to move on. We need to learn. Get past the ABCs in our Christian life and learn. Not only the ed- ed- education, but edification. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 22 through 24, it says, Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who has promised is faithful. But now look at this last one in this passage. It says, And let us consider how to stir up one another. You know what? Your life isn't meant to be lived alone. We're meant to be lived in community. The community that Christ has created for us is the church. And he's saying, look, you need to gather together. And this is the passage right after this is the verse that tells us not to forsake the assembling together of ourselves, as some people are in the habit of doing, but to gather together for the purpose of stirring one another up to love and good deeds. We come to church yeah, we get things out of church. I greatly hope you do, and I pray every week that you do. But you know what? As we come to church, part of our goal, maybe our main goal, shouldn't be what we get out of it, but what we put into it. Who can I encourage today? Who wouldn't have been encouraged if you weren't here, right? Who can I encourage? Who can I stir up? Who can I impact, help? Who can I comfort? Who can I care for? On, the, on our front sign out front there has our motto that we came up with 20 years ago, gathering to care, scatter to share. We scatter out and share the gospel, but when we gather together, we care for one another. And we try to build up one another and strengthen one another. That's exactly what this is talking about. The word for that in the Bible is edification, that we edify, that we we are built up together, that we grow in our faith. Well, also there's one of sanctification. Sanctification in chapter 12, verse 1 says, Therefore we're surrounded by a great cloud of witness. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin that so which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Sanctification means to be set apart for God, be drawn close to God. And this talks about setting aside, cleansing the sinful things out of our life and running that race for God, being sanctified to God, set apart to Him. There's the one of adoration in chapter 12, also verse 28. It says, therefore, let us be grateful. Let us offer to God acceptable worship. So we show our adoration to God. He calls us to do that. He also calls us to separation. Right toward the end of the book, chapter 13 and verse 13, it says, therefore, let us go to Him outside the camp. It talks about how Jesus was sacrificed outside the city walls of Jerusalem, outside the camp. He said, let's be willing to go to Christ outside the camp. In other words, if we're being ostracized out of a, a family or a community or a job, or a, let's be willing to be out there with Christ. Lastly, in verse 15, it says, Through Him, then, let us continually offer up the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. And so again, that idea of adoration. Well, the summary and the last summary that we have says, Motivated by fear of our God, who is a consuming fire, we must strive to hold fast and draw near to Christ by separating from sin, walking in faithfulness, expressing praise, growing in knowledge and experiencing community with other believers. So there's a lot here. There's a lot of things that we are encouraged to do. But as we look at this, passage. It's a call to, it was a call to commitment. It was dealing with a group of people that were going through hardships in their life. Were those hardships going to push them to God or push them away from God? The answer to that could only be found within themselves. Well, the same is true with us. Hardships come into our life. Does it push us toward God or does it push us away from God? The answer to that is also found within ourselves. We're foolish if we allow anything to push us away from God, good times or bad. 
because you never have it better. There's never any better path, any better decision, any better direction for you than the direction God has for you in your life, no matter what it involves. You are better now and for eternity trusting in Christ. Why? Because He's that perfect high priest that is in the process of perfecting you.